Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button because if you don't donate, we can't do this. To everyone that already has donated, uh, a major thank you. Your financial support and encouragement is greatly appreciated. Also, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and uh, hit the email list on our website. And we'll be back in just a second with Bob Poland. We're going to talk about the COP26 meetings in Glasgow and where Biden's at with his climate plan, with quotation marks around that. Back in a second. Last April, I interviewed economist Bob Poland, and he broke down Biden's American jobs plan and climate strategy. I'll repost that story on our website. But the gist of it was the Biden infrastructure plan was woefully inadequate for dealing with the climate crisis. For example, only planning to retrofit two million homes and commercial buildings when it should be hundreds of millions. And an overall reliance on carbon capture as a strategy, something that so far seems more pie in the sky than reality. Still, that said, there were some measures that limit the use of fossil fuels and boost sustainable energy. In other words, it was better than nothing. Now what's left of that better than nothing? Well, the plan is not yet settled or passed. Each day, the fossil fuel industry and their political allies in the Senate, who are themselves wealthy fossil fuel investors, are weakening the legislation. President Biden will go to the Glasgow COP26 meetings not as the man who can lecture the world, especially China, on facing up to the climate crisis, but as a man who can't or won't fight his own fossil fuel industry at a time when the future of organized society is at stake. The climate-denying barbarians are at the gates and are getting louder, and the inability of corporate Democrats to legislate effective measures caught as they are between their Wall Street backers and promises to deal with climate and the needs of workers has put Biden, as we and others have said, between BlackRock and a hard place. Of course, it's we ordinary humans who will reap the consequences. The rich think they are immune. Now joining us again to talk about the COP26 meetings and the unraveling of Biden's plan is Robert Poland. Bob is co-founder of the Perry Institute, the Political Economy Research Institute in Amherst, Massachusetts. He's the author of a book he co-authored with Noam Chomsky titled Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Very glad to be on. Thank you, Paul. So... There's a lot to dig into here, but let's start with uh, wh where are we at with these Glasgow meetings and saving the planet? It ain't, it ain't looking very good. No. Uh, yeah, it's very depressing to think about in the U.S., uh, specifically in the U.S., to think that we have these two senators, Manchin and Cinema, that are blocking the enactment of even what you know you and I had talked about, maybe minimally, barely adequate to get on a uh, green transition path. Um, and you know what did uh, Mansion I read I guess today or yesterday he said, well why should the government be uh, subsidizing giving money to companies to do things that they're already doing? meaning that there is already this transition already taking place out of fossil fuels and into clean energy. Well, that's that's not true. And the whole the whole point is, of course, 
that if it is happening, it's happening at a rate that is uh, woefully inadequate relative to the, the magnitude of the crisis. So, you know, he just is spouting anything because what he really is saying is that I'm just not going to do this because I'm, I'm work, I work for the fossil fuel companies. There was a leak of that interview with uh, somebody from ExxonMobil, a lobbyist who said, Joe Manchin is, is our, you know, is our point guy. He's our leader in fighting these things. And that's basically what he's doing. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's really, and, and of course, if Biden goes to the meeting, as he almost surely will, with only a very weak mandate, it makes it much more difficult to argue that China should be advancing something more, uh, more rigorous. Uh, as it is, you know, China has not even committed even on uh, in rhetoric to hitting the 2050 zero emission target. They said they could do it by 2060. There are serious consequences to waiting to 2060 if we believe climate science. So it's it's a very uh, discouraging moment. Uh, maybe we can pull out of it. I'm not sure how. Yeah, well, let's we'll kind of get to that a little later on, but I'm I agree. But uh, it's a little rich after years of subsidization of the fossil fuel industry that he's talking about subsidizing sustainable energy. Uh, but that being said, where are we at on that? One of Biden's major climate campaign promises was to cut subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. H has he? As far as I know, it's not even on the table. I haven't heard. I, it's not certainly not in the Build Back Better bill. And, you know, these are huge. Uh, the fossil fuel subsidies, you know, are in the tens to hundreds of billions if we add up all the sources of subsidy. And um, that, you know, if you eliminate it altogether, all the subsidies, that alone could pay for the climate bill. The, you know, the, the fossil fuel subsidies in, uh, in aggregate uh, could, could pay for the, at least the domestic uh, portion of a climate bill. And as again, you know, we have this discussion about paying for the for the build back better through tax increases on the rich, but why not paying for build we can do some of that, but why not pay for it by eliminating all fossil fuel subsidies? That that of course would be fully consistent with what uh Manchin is Manchin saying, why should the government be giving out these subsidies? Okay, then why should they be giving out subsidies to fossil fuel companies? It, it was at the very heart of Biden's election campaign on climate platform, eliminating fossil fuel subsidies. In fact, it went when you dug into the, the language of his election campaign platform, uh, his, he linked it to the issue of China, that not only was he going to end fossil fuel subsidies in the United States, he was going to pressure countries that were being getting involved in the China's Belt and Road Initiative and give them an alternative uh, form of financing that would eliminate any subsidies for fossil fuel. In other words, the United States would find ways to help finance these countries' energy transition and, and stop their subsidies for fossil fuel. Well, of course, he can't do an inch of that when he can't even do it at home. Right. That's right. I mean, you could say, I guess, this is Biden is um, 
obviously not fulfilling his campaign promises. But what it boils down to is that, you know, the Democratic Party isn't strong enough to win enough votes to get beyond these people, Cinema and, um, and Manchin. So until we, I mean, you know, in the House of Representatives, we have enough. And, you know, the Progressive Caucus is exercising real power. So you can see when you have, you know, even if it's a relatively small margin, they are using their power quite effectively. In the end, you know, if we had one more vote in the Senate, no one would care what Joe Manchin thinks. Okay, maybe two more votes. Well, maybe. There there might be some others waiting in the wings if they have to. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they're not the only... I, I love how they're in the media. They call these people moderate, moderate. Democrats. Where the hell's the moderate? No, no, they're, no, they're actually extremists. Because, you know, what exactly what Manchin said... You know, why should we subsidize uh, these things that are already happening in terms of a transition to green energy? Okay, putting aside the fact that we actually subsidize massively the fossil fuel industry, even the simplest right-wing Milton Friedman-style economics will tell you that when you have so-called market failures, when the, and in this case we have uh, what one leading economist, Nicholas Stern, called the greatest market failure in world history, meaning that we are creating, we're destroying the climate through allowing fossil fuels to be burned. Um, so we're having this market failure. And if you follow mainstream economics completely down the line, that means that you punish, you have to incorporate these costs into our market calculations. So uh, this is totally straight mainstream, orthodox, right, even right-wing economics that uh, Manchin isn't even reflecting that. Now, one of the things, I, I've said this a couple of times, and, or more than a couple of times in recent interviews, that, that pisses me off most about the Biden lack of plan is, is that the uh, something you've worked on, uh, some others, but you've been one of the key people, this issue of just transition and literally just p paying fossil fuel workers, give them a guarantee that you won't lose a penny of your wages if as we transition away from fossil fuels, which will help change the political dynamic of a whole bunch of uh, states that are voting for Republicans. Uh, but to do that, it means you have to really want to take on the fossil fuel industry because that, that means you're getting serious. But talk a little bit more about the economics of that. So, yeah, I've been doing work on that this issue now for several years. Uh, I've published stuff. Nobody's really challenged it and said that it's wrong. Um, it isn't wrong. You know, we have one in one paper, you know, we take we, we look at not only the workers that are employed by oil companies, gas companies, but all the ancillary companies such as distribution, even people working in gas stations. And we, we add all of them up. And then we say, okay, if uh, under the Just Transition program, every single one of them, number one, you have a pension that is guaranteed. Uh, number two, you're guaranteed a new job. Number three, you're guaranteed a new job, at least at the level of pay that you are now getting. And number four, to the extent you need it, you get retraining. And number five, you get relocation support. $75,000 for relocation support, for example, as needed. We add all of that up. 
and we do it for 2021 all the way to 2050 to get to zero emissions. And on average, the spending amount comes to $2 billion a year, which, okay, it's money, it's $2 billion. But again, we're talking about a $20 trillion economy. So this is uh, less than one one hundredth of 1% of GDP. This is nothing. This is to give an extremely generous package to every single person in any way working in the fossil fuel industry. And were we to do, and actually in Biden's plan, he has some rhetoric about this. It's not fleshed out, but the words are there, but it certainly isn't being advertised. It isn't being fleshed out in the way I've developed it. If, if, if they were to say that, you know what, all of you workers in, and coal industry workers, oil and gas workers in West Virginia, you're all going to get another job at your equal pay. Your pension is guaranteed. We are really, truly, truly going to take care of you. Okay, but you've got to agree to let this green transition happen. And then you're going to be taken care of. You're fine. You're going to be totally fine. And how does Joe Manchin oppose that? Looking at his own people, they're going to all get subsidized and not lose a penny. Well, that's, I mean, I wrote a program for West Virginia and I presented it to Manchin staff. And, you know, they were all nodding approvingly over Zoom, like we're talking now. I never met them face to face. But a, a couple of weeks after this happened, Manchin had a uh, press conference with the head of, I believe, the head of the AFL-CIO in West Virginia and the head of the mine, coal miners workers. And he he said effectively, if I'm not going to get his words exactly right, he said, yeah, it, we'll go along with this, but there has to be this just transition. So he's aware of it. He's aware of it. But, you know, in the end, I do a study, you know, I talk to his staff and then his friends in the coal industry call him up and say, what the hell are you talking about, Joe? And then he, he backs off. But had... If Biden, uh, let's say maybe it could still happen, say this is a centerpiece. This is a centerpiece of our program. Every single worker in the fossil fuel industry and every ancillary industry is fully taken care of, fully taken care of. Your communities are going to grow. They're going to flourish. But you, you have to go along with this. The fossil fuel era is over. Let's Let's end it in a way that benefits you. That is the critical thing. And I've, I've been saying this, you know, in various forums that uh, when we talk about COP, the COP uh, uh, conference, are we anytime we talk about Green New Deal, it has to include the just transition. That is the side thing that we mentioned, you know, at the very end in a paragraph or two, but it has to be front and center. It should be at the heart of a Democrat, even just the most narrowest partisan Democratic Party electoral strategy. Absolutely. Um, and just to put the cost in, uh, just a little another way to look at the cost of this thing, um, I think there's, they're planning something like a dozen Ford-class, uh, air. they're called Ford-class aircraft carriers, somewhere about $14 billion each. And even the neocons are saying it's totally pointless because China and Russia have means now with smart missiles to knock out aircraft carriers quite easily. They're actually ineffective uh, weaponry, but they're, of course, doing it because there's this massive amount of money to be made. And let me just ask, add to Manchin, he's not just friends in the fossil 
coal, coal. He is the part of the coal. I mean, he, he and his family are direct investors yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah, he made a half a million uh, dollars last year. My own, right. my own research, I should mention, on getting real deep into the details of the just transition really resulted way back in uh, 2014 when I put out a very long, big study called Green Growth that we talked about at, when it came out. And to my, it was true that my own uh, analysis on this transition issue was, let's say, superficial. It wasn't, it wasn't very good. I hadn't put a lot of time into it. And I was criticized by someone I respect a lot, who's a friend of mine who would then and is still now the chief economist of the AFL-CIO, Bill Spriggs. And he said, you know, Bob, you're not going to get anywhere until you take this question seriously. And he, he was right. And I spent like the next year getting up to speed. And not, it's not just that it's me, and not only me, certainly, but this needs to be, as Bill Spriggs really emphasized to me at the time, this has to be at the center of what we talk about when we talk about any kind of green program. And it's 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 barely, at least in D.C., uh, it's barely talked about. And you're right. It gets mentioned as an ancillary yeah. to like you talk about, you know, some climate objectives. Um, the, the the issue of what could Biden do if he was serious, given the deadlock or gridlock and, and the role of Manchin and all this. I mean, I'm no constitutional expert, but couldn't he declare a national emergency, deal with this like it was a war and just bloody well do it? I'm not. Of course, if, if Biden did it, he wouldn't be Biden. And if the corporate Democrats did it, they wouldn't be the corporate Democrats. But at least in theory, what's stopping him from just saying, OK, this is an existential threat to America and this is the equivalent of, of being threatened by war and we're just doing it. I mean, couldn't he? And shouldn't he? <laughs> I'm also not a constitutional expert, and I'm sure constitutional experts will differ as to the, you know, the ability of, of the president to do that. But I mean, if you take his rhetoric, it's almost as if he's saying that. It's then it's like, what does this translate into? I think if if Biden were to say uh, again and again and again instead of having to say, look, we have to, you know, we have to cut a deal, the Senator Manchin. Uh, if you were to say, you know, we have to uh, make this program happen. And I understand Senator Manchin's concerns. And therefore, we're going to do this just transition so that every single person in West Virginia is going to be, you know, 25% better off than they were last year. And that's part of the project of getting to a viable uh, uh, green transition program in the United States, which then can spill into the rest of the world. And in fact, that's probably the easiest thing that they can do. I mean, like I said, if it's $2 billion a year or thereabouts, that's peanuts. I mean, if we're talking about a program that's going to be roughly in the range in the investments in green energy, $400 billion a year, which I think is what's needed. So two billion is, is uh, you know, half of one percent of that. So, uh, you know, what does it mean to say, you know, we need to be on a war footing? I think, you know, we, he could just as easily say, we are going to make sure that everybody gets uh, a benefit from this program. So that's not hard to do. 
All right, so what do you say, and this is one of the critiques I've heard, that other workers who are not fossil fuel workers but are getting screwed, are working for minimum wages, nowhere near what fossil fuel workers are getting paid, uh, they're going to say, well, why should these guys get looked after like this while we continue to get screwed? Well, that is, that is a tough one because the fossil fuel workers, on average, are making over $100,000 a year. So they are you know, well paid, relatively. They have better benefits. They have higher rates of unionization. But let's keep in mind, that wasn't always the case. I mean, it wasn't always the case that one thought of a coal miner's job as a good job. It was because people struggled and built a union, the United Mine Workers, that fought for high wages and, and better conditions, not good conditions, but better conditions. That's where they are now. And, and I therefore completely understand that they're fighting to retain what they created. Uh, it was a huge achievement in a very hostile environment. So what do we say to other workers? Well, we say to other workers, you know, look, follow the example of what the coal miners achieved in the you know e previous era, and let's build up unionization and workers' rights there. I mean, it 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 should be the case that all workers have you know good unemployment benefits. Um, they did briefly under under the COVID stimulus program, um, and so that should set a standard against which we can improve overall unemployment benefits. Of course, if we run a full employment economy, effectively the issue of unemployment benefits kind of disappears if we have something akin to a full employment economy. If we improve unionization rates, uh, workers can bid up wages at a low unemployment rate and high bargaining power. So that seems to me to be the, the approach that would maybe convince people in other industries that this is okay. I mean, the other thing might also be to subsidize the wages, and I don't know if you've priced this out, of workers in sustainable energy industries that apparently get paid less now than fossil fuel workers do. But if you raise those wages and, and, and then with a big expansion of uh, sustainable energy uh, sector, there'd be thousands and thousands of new jobs. And if they paid at that kind of rate, uh, you know, either they'd get unionized and or uh, subsidized. Uh, maybe that also deals with some of this. Well, so in this various studies I've done over the last year for different states, including West Virginia, including uh, California, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Maine. Um, I mean, what certainly what we show over and over and over again, it's easy to show that the, the green investment programs are going to create 20 to 30 times more jobs than the jobs that are going to get lost per year in the fossil fuel industry. Even in Pennsylvania, which has a high proportion of fossil fuel jobs in fracking and in nuclear energy, so, but they do pay less. You know, let's say they pay 60 to $70,000 a year and the, and the people in fossil fuels are, are making 100,000, roughly speaking, on average. So what we argue for is, yeah, uh, the, the huge expansion in these in these sectors create an opportunity to uh, unionize and to bargain up wages. And we do factor in the wage increases in these industries when I cost out the overall impact of the green investment program. So when people are watching and they said, OK, what do we do about it? 
I, I, I mean, the simple answer is get organized, uh, but maybe put so, I can suggest putting some meat on the bones of getting organized. Like, for example, if you're in a union, uh, fight that your union take a real position on this issue of just transition, of ending uh, fossil fuel subsidies, uh, and the unions do have some leverage with the Biden administration, and workers right now have more leverage than, than usual because there's a lot of uh, jobs going uh, untaken right now. Um, so to start organizing within their organizations that the unions really have to take a position on this, and if they have leadership of these unions uh, that are simply unwilling to do this, uh, then start organizing to take control of the union or take control of your community group or even like it doesn't matter where you are. If you're in a wine club, get your wine club to take a position on these issues yeah. because, uh, you, know, it, you know, I've been in, I'm going to release some interviews soon with Jane McAlevey, who does a lot of union organizing, and she distinguishes between advocacy and organizing, and, and there's a lot of adv advocacy going on in about climate, but maybe not enough organizing and, and so that people actually start taking over the organizations or joining organizations they can in order to really take a position on this issue. Because obviously the, uh, the voice of the fossil fuel industry uh, is far louder. And, and, and the other thing too, and this is part of re revitalizing the unions, and I know you're quite connected to a lot of unions who, who you know, lean on you for analysis, but so many of the leaderships of the union are so uh, distanced from their own members and can, can barely talk to uh, workers who are voting for Trump and, and don't even really get the significance of Trump's climate denialism and what that's going to mean for their families and their kids. Uh, so, you know, getting organized means you know, dealing with both, you know, the, the issues of contracts and immediate economic consequences of, of people and don't treat workers like they're idiots. Uh, you know, workers can get the climate argument uh, if, if they can get out of the silo of those who are in that silo of right wing media. In California, when we put out our study in June, it was endorsed by 20 unions, so I think that's a first. Uh, it was endorsed, including by the uh, fossil fuel or the oil refinery workers union. Uh, this is the just transition study. The whole shebang, how, how uh, California can get to zero emissions by their stipulated goal, which is 2045 um, and 50% cut by 2030. So we show how you get there in terms of the energy transition. We show the job impacts, and then we show the just transition for the uh, workers in the industry. And, and then we also focus on Kern County, California, which is where most of the fossil fuel jobs are uh, disproportionately concentrated. So uh, we do have great union leadership. And you know, in thinking about this very depression, depressing week, what do I say when you say, okay, you know, Manchin, Senator Manchin, and is sinking the whole thing in the, for, at the federal level? Then what do we do next? I one answer is let's let's see what happens. California is 13% of the U.S. economy. If they can pass something, you know, significant in California, then it can be a model for other states, and we can gain momentum that way. It's not ideal, but uh, I mean, I think the union leadership in California 
has been outstanding. And, you know, I, I really admire what they're doing in terms of organizing, not just, not just advocacy. They are organizing their workers and they have the support of their membership, as far as I know. And that is going to move the governor uh, and it's going to set a standard, I think, for the rest of the country. Just as California up to now, you know, the fact that they did have these emission reduction standards for, for cars, um, that has now set the standard for the whole country because they're whatever, they're 15% of the market. So, so car, car companies, you know, they can't produce one set of cars for California and something else for the rest of the country. So by the same token, uh, at least I, I think we can see some significant movement in California led by the, the union movement. And maybe New York. Uh, there's and, a lot of and progressives. Maybe. And yes, I was going to say, we also did a study for New York. And uh, to date, you know, the, in New York, we've had a lot of great rhetoric from the state legislature and former Governor Cuomo that, you know, never amounted to anything. Well, amounted to something, but something nowhere near what was uh, needed. Uh, so, yes, in New York as well. Uh, those, those would be two huge breakthroughs. And so whatever happens in the next week or two at the federal level, we should also keep focused on those two states and really push for something meaningful. That in, and in the, at least in the case of California, I know we have a very large segment of the union movement taking, having taken leadership on this. So for people living well, really almost anywhere, but especially California, New York, uh, getting organized also means getting organized to really focus on what can be done at the state level. Yeah. I mean, California, New York must be, I don't know, what is the percentage of the national GDP or those yeah. two states? Yeah. Is, is a, it half the GDP? Yeah. It's about a quarter. A quarter? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, uh, it, it, the, to, to allow human civilization to tank because of rural America that it produces very little in reality towards the GDP. Like if you take out fossil fuel from GDP, I don't know what how much of rural America's contribution to the GDP is left. Do you know? I mean, certainly a lot of it is fossil fuel. Well, let's just say uh, that they obviously are disproportionately represented in the, especially in the Senate. And that's where we are. So, you know, we can say we got to get rid of that. Um, it's not going to happen in the next 18 months, so we have to do something else. And uh, let's keep pushing, obviously, at the federal level. But in places like New York, California, um, Pennsylvania, uh, if we can achieve a break, Pennsylvania is a little less likely at the moment. But California is ripe. And uh, so no matter what happens with the federal bill, if we can get something really strong and meaningful out of California, um, championed by the union movement, that could be a huge breakthrough. Uh, and just before we end, let me just remind everybody, you might want to add to it, uh, where we're at right now, we're at something like 1.2, 1.3 degrees of warming above pre-industrial global averages. We really should be trying to get to one. Uh, the problem is, given the politics and the reality of the economy, now the big fight is, can we even keep uh, from passing 1.5 within 10 to 15 years? And, and 1.5 has, has sort of gotten to sound like an acceptable number. But, but 
I, I should say, based on, I, I did a recent interview with uh, the guy, the climate scientist who was co-author of chapter 11 of the recent IPCC report. And 1.5 is serious. What we're seeing now in terms of uh, temperature warming, forest fires, uh, droughts, uh, flooding, uh, it's almost, it's something akin to almost close to a doubling by 1.5 from where we are now. 1.5 to 2 is a full another doubling. 2 degrees to 3 is a quadrupling of, of climate, uh, what, he, what they call serious uh, climate events. And, 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 and there's always the potential for something more cataclysmic that they can't predict. For example, the oceans aren't capable of absorbing the kind of carbon they are now. So, I mean, the urgency of this just isn't getting through to people who aren't already following all right. this stuff. I know I talk to ordinary people about this stuff. And, I, and when I say the sentence I just said, they say, what, really? Uh, it's crazy. So if you know, getting organized, if you're aware of this stuff, means getting really clear on how to talk to people, your work co-workers or your co-members of the wine club, whatever it is, your parents' association. And if you're not in something and you're not that busy, you know, join something, and 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 raise the level of these conversations because the general level of urgency just isn't there. Well, right. So I mean, my own model has always, you know, I'm not a climate scientist. So basically I've just gone from the so-called consensus IPCC models in terms of how to hit whatever they say the target is to uh, avoid the most severe consequences. So, you know, my models have been based around hitting the 1.5 target and what it takes to hit the 1.5 degree uh, stabilization target and yes, uh, I, I do know that, you know, uh, people at, working within the IPCC, serious climate scientists do say what you just said, even 1.5 is raised. Yeah, because we already are at 1.1, 1.2. So every every tenth of a percent of, of uh, warming is generating more severe consequences. So some of it is unavoidable and it's going to happen. But uh if we can get to this, uh, if we can hit the stabilization path laid out by the IPCC, which is 50% uh, cut by 2030 and zero by 2050, at least we would be at that 1.5 standard. If, if we can get lower, uh, that of course would entail also uh, carbon, some carbon re removal technologies beyond stopping burning fossil fuels. And uh, that's the way to get there. But we first have to, as you say, we have to imbue into people's consciousness how urgent this is. We can't, just, we can't have these people like Manchin just talking utter nonsense and, you know, being called a moderate. He's an insane person or he's like ultra greedy and insane. And that's the truth. That's the truth. And that part of this is so much a media problem that, that treats the whole Republican Party as if it's kind of a normalized part of American politics. I, I guess because it is, but it means a criminal gang, gang of climate deniers are, are, are normal. And yeah. I guess yeah, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Bob. Okay. Great talking to you.
And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Again, please, can't, we can't do this without your financial support. And thanks to everyone that has supported us. And subscribe and sign up. Uh, all the buttons. Well, thanks very much.